0: This is Jen Rubin, columnist for The Washington Post, contributor to MSNBC, author of How Women Saved America from Donald Trump. I'm here to tell you all about my new podcast, Jen Rubin's Green Room. It's for people who love politics, love gossiping about politics, but are bored by the same old, same old that you get on cable TV and in newspapers. We're going to have guests who will talk gossip and the inside stories of Washington, but we're also going to have guests who will talk about deadly, serious subjects, guns, race, religion, I'm delighted to announce my very first guest will be George Conway, an extraordinary litigator and an expert on Trump's brain. Keep up with the show every Wednesday when you follow Jen Rubin's Green Room on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I can't wait for you to join us.
1: Welcome back to Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shee.
0: And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's hashtag Jill's Pin is one that was made for me by a fan in Portland, Oregon. And it is a picture of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in a little picture frame. And it's really adorable and very appropriate to our discussion today with our guest because we're talking about the Supreme Court.
1: Yes, and we're talking about the Supreme Court because public trust for the Supreme Court has reached an all-time low. In 2020, 67% of Americans trusted the Supreme Court. In 2021, that number fell dramatically to 54%. And then in 2022, that number dropped again to 47%, which means now less than half of Americans feel like they can trust hands down. And for an institution that relies on public trust, this is undeniably concerning and problematic, but it's not without good reason. For one, given the increasingly Republican tilt of the Supreme Court in recent years, it's been more brazen in rolling back fundamental rights and taking more extreme positions. But equally as concerning is something called the shadow docket, which we will talk about in length today, that allows the Supreme Court to make decisions without a full briefing and argument.
0: And the person who is perfect to discuss that is our guest today, and that is Steve Laddick, who is the author of a book called Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Steve is also a law professor at the University of Texas in Austin, where he holds the Charles Allen Wright chair, which is important to me because Charles Allen Wright was one of the lawyers for the um, defense in the Watergate case. Um, He also is a CNN commentator. And Steve, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you with us today. Thank
2: you guys for having me. It's a real treat.
0: So let's get right to the shadow docket. And um, well, actually, before we get to the shadow docket, let's talk about a recent Supreme Court decision that surprised many people. And it wasn't a shadow DACA case. It was Allen v. Milligan, which ruled against a gerrymandered congressional district in Alabama. And it's one of the first times that the Voting Rights Act has been held to be violated in recent times. It was something that has been undermined by the Supreme Court by other cases. This is one where the district was drawn in a way that It diluted the black vote very severely beyond uh, any relationship to the number of black citizens and black voters. But Roberts and Thomas joined the three liberal justices and then Barrett, Kavanaugh, Alito and Gorsuch dissented. And so first, let's talk about the arguments in that case that the majority and the dissenters set forth in support of their uh, opinions.
2: Well, so, I mean, actually, Jill, this case actually did start on the shadow docket, which is actually a good segue to to what's happening in our conversation today. Um, So the the short version is um, Alabama's population is about 27 percent black. And that population is actually fairly compact. There's a part of Alabama known colloquially as the black belt. Um, which is where a large chunk of that population lives. And when uh, California, when Alabama went to redraw their uh, congressional district maps, Alabama has seven House districts Mm -hmm. after the 2020 midterms or after the 2020 census for the 2022 Mm -hmm. midterms. um, Alabama drew a map that had only one so-called majority minority district. And this was challenged immediately um, by the NAACP, by other civil rights groups, as a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act because it was improperly diluting the electoral power of Black Alabamians. Um, two different lower courts agreed and actually blocked the maps last January, only to have the Supreme Court, in an unsigned, unexplained five to four ruling last February, put those rulings on hold and allow Alabama to use its unlawful map in the 2022 midterms. That ruling had effects in Georgia, in South Carolina, in Louisiana, in Ohio. You know, there are probably somewhere between three and seven House seats um, that ended up as safe Republican seats that had these district courts been allowed to carry their rulings into effect. Could have been either contested seats or perhaps even safe Democratic seats. Anyway, fast forward to last Thursday, when a different 5-4 majority with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh joining the three Democratic appointees, said actually the district courts were right, um, that this does violate section two of the Voting Rights Act under a 1986 precedent called Thornburg versus Gingles, and that Alabama and by implication these other states are gonna have to redraw their maps. And so, you know, Jill, what's, what's striking about that is not just as you said, you know, here's a rare example of this Supreme Court accepting, siding with, right, a a voting rights act claim, it's remarkable that it's going to have, I think, both a dramatic effect going forward, where now we could see seven to 10 seats in the 2024 elections where the ratings flip, because now these are likely going to be at least contested seats, if not leans, Democratic seats. But Jill, it also, I think, is a remarkable indictment of the court's unsigned, unexplained interventions last year, which I think it's not that crazy to suggest could have directly affected the Republican control of the House since the Republican majority right now is 10 seats. Five House races go differently. Right. And you've got a 217, yeah. 217 House.
0: And that's what I think is so important for our listeners to know, is that these Supreme Court cases aren't just scholarly They aren't somewhere off there. They have a direct impact on our lives and in this case, our democracy and the control of the house. Imagine if our house were a fairly uh, divided and that it was democratic controlled right now, how much more President Biden could accomplish and what, what differences there would be. So that is really important.
2: And I think, I mean, it goes to really part of why I wanted to write this book. I mean, I wrote this book, you know, Jill, as you say, not for lawyers, um, right? But for all of us, lawyers and non-lawyers, um, to help put what's happening on the Supreme Court in context, um, to suggest that, you know, the Supreme Court is a heck of a lot more than just the sum of the 60 or so merits rulings, of hands down, each term. Right. And I think last year's interventions in Alabama and in Louisiana are a great example of this because even though there was no opinion, even though there wasn't that much news coverage, the Supreme Court's orders had massive real-world effects, perhaps up to and including who currently controls the House of Representatives.
1: I mean, the effects are chilling and we we want to get to your book, but I I want to circle back to a really interesting piece that you co-wrote about uh, Alabama versus Milligan uh, in The Washington Post with Melissa Murray um, about how, while this decision is a relief, it isn't quite the victory that many people think. And you start by kind of reminding people that the decision simply upholds the status quo rather than strengthens the Voting Rights um, Amendment. First of all, or Act. First, explain to those in our audience who may be who may not be too familiar with the Voting Rights Act what initially kind of sought to do and yeah. achieve, and how it's been weakened by the Supreme Court in recent years.
2: Sure. I mean, I, I think it's no it's no overstatement to suggest that the Voting Rights Act is the most important civil rights statute Congress has ever enacted. Um, it was enacted in 1965 after the. You know, the famous uh, uh, march uh, in Alabama, the Selma March, um, after this massive push to expand voting rights, because there was such this history of states, especially southern states, um, making it difficult, if not impossible, for Black citizens to vote, to exercise the franchise, to vindicate the constitutional rights that the 15th Amendment expressly recognizes. Um, And so the VRA, the statute, had two different ways of carrying this out. Uh, We might call it the the wholesale way and the retail way. So the wholesale approach is what was known as the preclearance regime. And under this regime, if you were a jurisdiction, a state, a county, a city with a history of discrimination on the basis of race in your elections, you couldn't change anything about your elections without preclearance, without the approval of the Justice Department. And if DOJ refused, you could sue and challenge their refusal, but you had to litigate first. And so the pre-clearance regime was basically, if you are a bad actor historically, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. You have to clear your changes first. Um, that is the part that the Supreme Court eviscerated in 2013. So in a case called Shelby County versus Holder in 2013, a 5-4 majority Um, effectively gutted the preclearance regime, not by saying preclearance itself is unconstitutional, only Justice Thomas took that position, but by saying that the formula Congress had used to figure out which jurisdictions counted and which ones did not was too dated. Um, And so the court threw out the so-called coverage formula, Victor knowing full well that Congress was not about to come back and enact a new one. Um, And so the sort of, even though the decision left plenty of room for Congress to enact an updated coverage formula. Everyone knew that that was effectively going to be the end of preclearance until you had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate willing to do that. So with the wholesale option off the table, that leaves retail, um, which is Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And Section 2 says, you know, anyone who is harmed by a local or state or even federal, although that's rare, um, voting rule that discriminates on the basis of race can walk into court and sue it on a retail basis, challenge them one at a time. So preclearance is before it goes into effect, section two is after it goes into effect. Um, and one of the things that folks have been paying a lot of attention to is the Supreme Court steadily sort of diluting the force of section two. There's a case from a couple of years ago called Burnovich versus Democratic National Committee, where the court made it a little bit harder to bring a section two claim. Um, There are lower court decisions that have made it a lot harder to bring Section 2 claims. And that's what these Alabama cases were. These Alabama cases were retail challenges to Alabama's congressional districts, districts that could not have gone into effect, right, under the preclearance regime, but that did because preclearance is dead. Um, And so, Victor, the, the shift in the last decade has been from wholesale to retail, and with all eyes on how the Supreme Court has even made retail harder. So this is what gets us to Thursday. So on Thursday, the Supreme Court says we're not making retail challenges any more harder than they were already. And a whole lot of folks like major victory for democracy. And, you know, Melissa Murray and I, we don't disagree that that's better than the alternative. Um But, you know, I I think we also shouldn't be giving the Supreme Court participation trophies. Um, Right. And so that's why we wrote that op-ed was to say, like, yes, it could have been worse. That does not mean it's great.
0: Well, let's explore that a little more, because I worry about the decision being even worse than not just great. Um, I, I worry that it is actually foretelling that affirmative action is dead. Mm-hmm. And I would certainly like your view on that. Um, so talk about that a little.
2: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Jill, I think a lot of folks especially looked at Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, um, which has a series of sort of throwaway lines that you could see as portents of what's coming in the affirmative action cases. So, you know, as I think folks know, two of the biggest cases the Supreme Court has this term and still to decide among the 23 that are left are these two challenges to race-based affirmative action in higher education. One challenge involves public universities where the claim is that um, affirmative action is unconstitutional. One challenge involves private universities where the claim is that it violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act because it's race-based decision-making. And, you know, Jill, I think there's, you know, not as much in Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion, but there are some snippets in Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence in the Alabama case about how you know these things are not supposed to be permanent. Um, about how you know we're not supposed to be sorting based on race except when we have to make up for some past discrimination. I mean, like there there are lines in there that I think are quite possibly predictive of what's to come. And frankly, I mean, I, I don't know that there are any Supreme Court watchers who expect the court not to get rid of affirmative action. I, I think the the real question is not whether, but how. Um, Right. What there's a small way for the court to do it, or at least a relatively smaller way for the court to do it. And there's a huge way for the court to do it. And I think like that's part of why Melissa and I wrote our piece. It's like, let's not get all, you know, teary eyed about the the not so terrible court just yet. Right. right.
0: Well, what is the small way and what's the large way?
2: Sure. I mean, so um, the, the sort of the really quick nerdy con law. Um, so the, the sort of the short version is under the Supreme Court's doctrinal tests. Um, To survive constitutional challenge, race-based affirmative action has to be, the the quote is, narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling government interest. So two requirements. Mm -hmm. One, that there be a compelling interest. One, that the particular policies be very precise, be neither overbroad nor under-inclusive. The narrow way is to focus on tailoring. The narrow way is to say that there's just no way to precisely tailor an affirmative action program, because there are always going to be some students who get beneficial treatment who don't need it, and some students who don't get beneficial treatment who do, um, right? That would put the kibosh on race-based affirmative action. It would not, however, stop public and private colleges from prioritizing the achievement of diversity as such, right, as an educational goal. Mm-hmm. The broad way is to go after the compelling interest. And ever since Justice Powell's solo concurring opinion in a 1978 case called Bakke, the compelling interest on which affirmative action has rested is the government's compelling interest in the achievement of educational diversity, the idea that it's in all of our interests, the, the state's interest, the school's interest, corporate America's interest, the military's interest, to have a diverse um, body of well educated young people. Um, if the court went after diversity as a compelling interest, then all of a sudden that's going to have ramifications far beyond just race. Um, right? I mean, in, here in Texas, we have what used to be the 10% plan, what's now the 6 ish percent plan, <laughs> where if you graduate in the top 6% of any high school in Texas, you're guaranteed admission to you know, one of our public universities. That program exists to achieve diversity, not racial diversity necessarily, but socioeconomic, geographical, experiential diversity. The broad holding that we could possibly get in the affirmative action cases would spell trouble for that, too, and not just for race-based affirmative action.
1: I know a lot of young people are really concerned about this and and what that world would look like. I mean, what would it look like if the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action? What would that do to college admissions and, and I guess, like you said, diversity and building a class is kind of representative
2: of what America looks like? So, I mean, again, Victor, I think it depends on whether they go the small way or the big way. Right. I mean, so the small there are there are ways that private and public schools could continue to work to build diverse classes, even if they can't specifically take race into account, Um, right? You can look at, you know, the sort of the socioeconomic status of the applicant. You can look at um, the property value of their home neighborhood. I mean, there are lots of ways to sort of build diversity across the axes we care about without specifically coding for race. If the court goes broader, right? That's gonna have massive ramifications because now if you are a public or private university, you know, how do you build your class if you're not allowed to, if you can't have diversity as your goal, right? If, if you have to now, you know, maybe they can try to redefine it as, you know, our goal is excellence and excellence is itself subjective. But this is why, I mean, to go back to where Jill started, you know, I think for those who are sort of Supreme Court nerds, there's been some amount of, of fatalistic acceptance that, you know, in one way, shape or form, there are five votes to end race based affirmative action. And the real key is going to be, is it small or is it big? Yeah. Just, I, I don't want to sort of um, sugarcoat this. Like a, the small version is still enormous. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this, and, and this goes back to, you know, Melissa and my op-ed, like, you know, th- that's not a victory. Yeah. Um, right. That's actually an enormous defeat. It's just, you know, it's not, it's not quite the cataclysm um, yeah. that the sort of rejection of diversity is a compelling interest in any circumstance would be.
0: And and we will post your op-ed in our show notes so that everyone can read that, along with, of course, the name of your book. But I diverted us off to this affirmative action. Sorry. I I just want to go back a little bit to the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, we have a time right now where we have a lot of Republican-controlled states, and they are passing what I would call clear voter suppression laws. And I'm wondering what Milligan means in terms of the Supreme Court's likely rulings on those voter suppression laws?
2: So, I mean, I think the Milligan ruling is good in the sense that, you know, you have now five justices, Jill, not just tossing Alabama's maps, but actually giving new added teeth. To Section Two of the VRA, uh, right? That there have been efforts in the lower courts. So there's an Arkansas decision that had said private plaintiffs can't enforce Section Two; only DOJ can. That's now wiped off the books, um, at least practically, by a Thursday's decision. You know, Jill, there are other challenges now that are going to go forward where the plaintiffs are going to have good arguments based on, you know, the. Chief Justice Roberts' analysis of Section 2. So, you know, I, I think that's, that's the upside here, which is that there's now renewed energy and momentum behind these retail challenges. The problem, just to go back to where Melissa and I started, is the Voting Rights Act exists entirely in reaction to Congress's determination that retail isn't enough. Yeah. Um, that discrimination on the basis of race in voting is so pervasive in some parts of the country that it's just not adequate to leave everyone to these one-off lawsuits. I mean, right, so Texas has 254 counties, um, right? Are are voters really supposed to go one county at a time um, in challenging county-by-county variations, or should the onus be on these historically bad-acting jurisdictions to justify their rules. Like that's, so, you know, section two litigation is better than nothing. And Thursday's ruling, I think will put new oomph, uh, that's a technical term uh, into these (laughs) section two cases. It's just worth like stressing how far we've fallen from a world in which the onus was on these jurisdictions to prove that their laws were not discriminatory as opposed to on individual plaintiffs to prove that each and every variation in each and every law is
1: interesting um there's a lot more cases obviously with the supreme court but with so many cases pending what would you say are three that um concern you or ones that maybe we should be paying attention to right now
2: well i mean obviously affirmative action at the top of the list um i actually think also for both obvious and less obvious reasons the student loan cases are going to be a really big deal um obviously folks are fixated on the substance of president biden's student loan debt forgiveness program But it would be pretty remarkable if this Supreme Court even gets to the substance of that program, given how much of a stretch it is to conclude that any of the plaintiffs in the two cases the court is hearing about the student loan program have what we call standing. That is to say, are the right kinds of plaintiffs to bring the case in the first place. Um, That would be a huge deal, Victor, not just for the student loan program, but for future litigation challenge of federal policies. Um, and, you know, I'll just say, I, I think the third case that I'm really paying close attention to, although maybe not as much as uh, or you know, maybe others would have a, a different case at number three. There's this case about a Colorado website designer called 303 Creative, um, where the website designer is basically saying that she has a First Amendment free speech right to not produce websites for same sex couples for their wedding. She she's a wedding website designer and she wants to be able to not do. You know, same-sex wedding websites, and this is cast not as a free exercise claim; it's cast as a pure free speech claim. Um, and if the Supreme Court holds that business proprietors have free speech rights to refuse to serve, you know, same-sex couples, I think that opens up a can of worms yeah, um, that's going to have consequences way beyond. You know, website design in Colorado. So th- there are a bunch in the 23 cases that are left that I'm really focused on, but the these three sets of cases, actually five cases total, because affirmative action is two, student loans are two, yeah. and the website design case is one. But these three decisions across these five cases are really top of the list for me.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I agree all three of those are really important. I'm personally concerned about the independent state legislature Mm -hmm. theory because I think that could end democracy as we know it if you cannot have even the state Supreme Court review the conduct of the state legislature. And there are so many others that we've seen this year. Um, Religion is one of the ones that I would say has gone way beyond what I think the First Amendment was ever intended to protect Um, so I, there are many to be concerned with, but let's move.
2: Oh, okay. Go go ahead. Just really quickly, Jill, all I was going to say is the the only reason why I didn't include Moore versus Harper, the independent state legislature case is because I I really do think the court's going to find a narrower way out of that. But yes, Mm -hmm. I mean, if the court goes for the, the jugular and says, you know, state courts cannot invalidate state laws about federal elections, even when they violate the state constitution, That is an enormous problem um, for Democratic participation across, you know, not every state, but enough states to be a serious, serious issue going forward. I guess I'm less worried, at least based on how things are going, about how that case is going to come out than the other ones. But yes, you're absolutely right. That should be up there, too.
0: Okay, let's we'll talk about that one after the decision. But yeah, (laughs) it is of concern to me um, very much. But I, I want us to move, if we could, to the shadow docket because um, of course, it's as we've talked about, it's related to everything we've been talking about. Um, And so let's start with you giving a basic explanation, you know, quick and dirty about the shadow docket, what it is and how it departs from the traditional merits document that the Supreme Court uses to actually decide cases after argument.
2: Sure. And this is, again, I think this is where the Alabama case is a good, you know, sort of accessible recent example. So um, the term shadow docket is not meant to be pejorative. It's just a shorthand that was coined by a Chicago law professor, Will Bode, in 2015, Jill, to sort of cover everything other than the merits docket. So we just talked about a bunch of the big merits cases that are left. You know, the Supreme Court gets 60 to 70 of those now every year. Um, and as, as this conversation suggests, we tend to focus on those cases, especially as we get toward the end of the term and the big decisions. The reality is that that's less than 1% of the Supreme Court's total output, um, right? That you know, 99% of the Supreme Court's rulings come through unsigned, unexplained orders. Um, mm. Now, before everyone sort of loses their mind, most of that 99% is uncontroversial. Like most of that is the Supreme Court turning away either meritless appeals um, or turning away, you know, meritless applications for emergency relief, Mm -hmm. but not all of them. And so, you know, what we've seen in the last six years, part of why I wrote the book, is we've seen a lot more circumstances where the Supreme Court is using unsigned, unexplained orders, especially emergency applications, like in the Alabama case, where before the merits get to the Supreme Court, a party comes to the court and says, we'd like you to freeze the status quo or unfreeze the status quo while this case works its way through. So we've seen more of those in the last six years. We've seen rulings with much broader consequences in this context. Um, So the Alabama redistricting case is just one example. The Texas abortion ban was allowed to go into effect on the shadow docket. Um, The OSHA vaccination mandate was blocked on the shadow docket. Um, Lots of Trump immigration policies that lower courts blocked allowed to go into effect on the shadow docket. So it's not just that there are more of these, it's that they're having much broader impacts. And I think this is where it gets most alarming. Um, The rulings, when you actually put them all together, they really defy any neutral legal principle. There's no rational through line that explains why the court is intervening when it is at least in legal terms. Um, instead, it has the appearance that the court is playing partisan favorites, that you know, Trump administration policies are being unblocked, where Biden administration policies are being blocked, um, yeah. that blue state COVID mitigation measures are being blocked, but red state COVID mitigation measures are not being blocked. And so you know, what you have, Jill, is sort of a, com- a confluence of phenomena where the court is doing all of this stuff through orders that by tradition are unsigned and unexplained. Those orders are having far more visible impacts than they ever had before. And when you look at the body of work, those orders look inconsistent in a way that makes it look like the justices are playing politics and sort of voting up and down on policies they like, as opposed to applying the kinds of neutral legal principles that are supposed to be animating their decision-making
0: do you think they just look that way or that they are that way?
2: Well, I mean, only the justices know for sure, um, but that's part of the problem, Jill, right? Which is that, you know, um, there are gonna be lots of folks who, who assume that at least some of the justices are acting in bad faith here. Um, my point is you don't even need to believe that to think this is a problem, um, right? That, you know, the sort of, the reason why, I mean, look, look, just if we back up a second, why do we have opinions? Right? Why did Chief Justice Roberts write thirty some odd pages about the Voting Rights Act? It's because what makes judges judges and what makes justices justices is not their raw power to approve or disapprove a policy; yeah. it's their ability to provide principled justifications for their decision making. We we may not all agree with the principles, but hopefully we will at least agree that they are principles. And so, you know, Jill, the problem is that when there are no principles. Um, I can't answer your question. I can't tell you if it's just the appearance or it's the reality. And that's, from the court's perspective, something that ought to be really problematic.
1: When did this increase in the usage of kind of shadow, I mean, not shadow docket, but like these more kind of big types of decisions really start? Do you have any data on kind of the number of cases that have kind of emerged in the recent years through the shadow docket?
2: Yeah, so, you know, it's really in two phases, Victor. Um, so phase one in the book walks through this. The real sort of modern shift toward what I see as the problematic features of the shadow docket are actually a creature of the early 80s um, and the reinstitution of the federal death penalty, where federal. Uh, sorry, the, 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 de- the, the national death penalty, including the federal death penalty, where we, set, we, see, we saw a flurry of last minute applications to block or unblock executions. And that put pressure on the court to change its ways in lots of different respects that at least, Victor, for the better part of the 80s, the 90s and the 2000s, stayed cabined to the death penalty context. The second part of the shift is a a Trump era shift where starting around 2016, 2017, partly because the Justice Department started asking the court to intervene so much more often during the Trump years, we see the shift away from the death penalty into the statewide nationwide policy matters. Just one data point that I think drives this home during the George W. Bush and Barack Obama presidencies, two very different two term administrations. Um, the government goes to the Supreme Court for emergency relief a total of eight times in 16 years. So once every other year, seven of those eight rulings are not divisive. Right. There's there's only one of those rulings in which there's even a dissent on the Supreme Court. Um, so, you know, tame, right? Not that often, not that big a deal. In Trump's four years, he goes 41 times. Um, so a 20 oh, fold increase. And the court wow. grants 28 of those. Um, and almost all of them are divisive. I mean, there's almost always someone dissenting publicly, whether from the left or from the right. And I guess that's, you know, that to me is, is a, you know, a real part of how we're able to see the ship, because now there's a flood of cases. In which we Uh can take a broader look at the data. I don't think it's purely a Trump phenomenon. I mean, the justices had to acquiesce in the phenomenon, but I don't think there's any question that this has become a much bigger part of the Supreme Court's work in the last six or seven years than ever before. You ask anyone who clerked on the Supreme Court um, in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, what was the shadow docket? They would just say the death penalty. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what they remember of emergency applications. Guys, now it's everything. Now it's the student loan program. Title Forty Two, the Mifepristone case, um, West Virginia trying to put back into effect its ban on transgender women participating in school sports teams. You know, you name a hot button, divisive policy matter, and it gets to the shadow docket these days.
1: Is there anything that can happen from inside the court to solve this problem?
2: Um, Yeah, and I actually think some of it already has. Um, So you know, the justices. What One of the stories here, and and this is a story that the book tries to tell, is that the shadow docket is in some respects a symptom of a broader disease of Congress sort of taking its reins off of the court, Um, right? I mean, if you look at the history of Congress's relationship with the Supreme Court, Congress was super involved in the court's docket, in its building, in the justices' travel, in the budget, all the way from the founding into the really the late 20th century. And it's only in the last 30 to 35 years we've seen Congress sort of take its hands off. And this is one of the results. I think some of the ethics kerfuffles we've seen is another part of that story. So Victor, some of this can come from within, but you know the broader institutional disease that I think the book tries to you know, make the case for um, is a disease that the justices can't solve by themselves even if they start behaving better, um, right? The, the court can try to make itself more accountable But the real problem is that Congress isn't requiring it to do so. And so you know I think we've already seen the justices moderate their behavior in some respects, especially Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, they're not voting for emergency relief as often this term as they were last term. But I think real change here has to come from a renewed institutional Mm -hmm. interest on
0: Congress's part in the overall work of the Supreme Court. So when you talk about fixing things, one of the things that I think our listeners would agree needs fixing is Supreme Court ethics and conflicts of interest. Um, so let's turn to that and ask: Is there anything that can happen again from inside the court? How reasonable is it that they will actually take seriously their loss of status, um, or is there something that needs to be done from outside? You mentioned Congress as maybe needing to act, and and be as specific as you can, please.
2: Sure. I mean, so I think there's a lot the court can do if the justices want to. I mean, we saw back in April all nine justices signed on to this renewed commitment to follow at least these fairly loose ethical principles. Um, We've already seen, Jill, Justice Kagan has actually for the first time started explaining her recusals in these technical boring Mm -hmm. orders no one pays attention to. Um, That's actually a pretty significant shift from the court's prior behavior. But Justice Alito isn't. and so there's an example of where, you know, the justices are a they, not an it. And so some of them seem to be committed to this newfound transparency, but perhaps not all of them. As for what Congress can do, you know, I think Congress can do a lot. I mean, there's a, there's a mindset out there that any congressional sort of interference with the court somehow violates the separation of powers. That mindset really needs a history lesson. Um, because if you actually look at the history of Congress's relation with the court, Congress didn't let the Supreme Court meet in 1802. Um, Congress controls the size of the court. Congress used to make the justices travel all over the country just to remind them who is boss. Congress didn't give the court its own facilities until 1935. Congress was, you know, not giving the justices a pay raise as late as 1964 mm-hmm. to express displeasure with their rulings. So on the ethics front, you know, even the the lowest hanging fruit to me is actually encapsulated in a bill introduced by Senators King and Murkowski Um, and the King Murkowski bill basically says, hey, Supreme Court, we're not going to tell you what the rules are, but you have to adopt some rules and you have to hire someone who's going to monitor your compliance with those rules. And that person is supposed to tell us when they find episodes of noncompliance, just in case it's so bad that we might want to use our constitutional power of impeachment. Um, I don't, I mean, there are people out there saying even that raises separation of powers concerns. I I think that's nuts, Um, right? The judicial independence is not irreconcilable with judicial accountability. And, you know, those who say otherwise are just ignoring the first 200 years of, you know, the separation of powers between Congress and the court.
0: And as we move towards some kind of code of conduct for the justices. And transparency, Justice Thomas, of course, being the poster boy for why the court is losing its credibility, uh, did not file his even minor required uh, documents yet. He got an extension and he's entitled to do that. But do you have any clues as to why this year he got an extension?
2: Um, it's actually not that uncommon, Jill. I think it's just that, like, now that there's so much attention being paid to all of this stuff, um, everyone wants to sort of try to ride out the news cycle. Um, but, you know, I, I guess the problem I have with the entire Justice Thomas contratombs um, is that no one's moving the needle, right? Like, we are all convinced that Justice Thomas's behavior is deeply problematic. Um, his defenders are convinced that he's above reproach. And there's no mechanism to resolve who's right, right? The, this all gets played out in the court of public opinion when we get stuck in this feedback loop. This, to me, is where the accountability conversation comes in. Like, imagine if there was a mechanism, someone who could say, yes, when you didn't yeah. do this, that was wrong. Or when you did this, that was okay. Um, who isn't just, you know, Justice Thomas's close personal friends. Um, right? like, that's that to me is what's missing here. And, and what I, Jill, what I don't understand and I just, I, you know, I, and I, I say this not remotely facetiously, I don't understand why the justices themselves aren't invested in that. Like, I don't understand why from yeah. their perspective, it isn't actually really important to have these very, very moderate signs of, you know, endorsing the idea that they ought to be accountable. Um, that to me is a far bigger problem with where we are with the Supreme Court right now than any one merits ruling the court could hand down, you know, this term or next. Good point. Well, do you think anything else
1: can help kind of change the perception of the court to the public? I mean, we mentioned the um, hopefully, you know, there's some movement on the shadow docket, but is there any other court reforms you think
2: could help uh, with the Americans' public, I guess, perception toward the court? I mean, you know, I think, Victor, there's lots of stuff Congress could do if it wanted to. I mean, the problem is with the Republican House and with a filibuster, you know, in the Senate. Um, I'm not sure what that looks like, but part of why I wrote the book and part of why I'm you know really excited to be having conversations like this one is because I think just having conversations about the court that treat it as an institution, as opposed to just the sum of its merits decisions, right? Where, where we're not just yeah. saying, you know, uh, Alabama voting rights case, good, uh, affirmative action case, bad, yeah. right? I mean, I, I, you know, having a conversation about the court where we're not just sort of painting the court in its most obviously partisan and ideological light i, I think maybe a, it, it's a slow process but you know i mean jill knows all about institutional reform right and the history and and how it's a slow march toward progress but i think it starts by changing the conversation away from here's why this ruling was wrong and toward here's how we ought to be repairing the institutional relationships." even if we don't think the rulings are wrong. Right. And so this is where I think I probably get in trouble with some progressives. You know, I'm here to, I'm here to save the court, not to bury it. Um, But, you know, I think we need a court and maybe not this court, but a court. Um, And, and having that conversation, I think is such an important thing that we haven't been doing until recently. And I'm really, really excited to see, you know, some of the dynamics starting to change.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly agree with you we need a supreme court it has served throughout our history of almost 250 years it has served a very good and valid function but at this point it's being seen as my the decisions are not based on law and fact and the constitution they're being based on political viewpoints and that's undermining the court completely. So do you think there's any court reform that you would support that you think would help the court get back to being a credible institution within our government?
2: Sure. I mean, I I think the King Murkowski bill on the ethics front, Jill, would be a very good place to start. Um, On the sort of substance side, I I would love to see Congress reassert some control over the court's docket. Um, It used to be that Congress told the court which cases to hear. And no one thought that was unconstitutional. really, um, until, until 1891, every single case the Supreme Court heard was a case Congress told it it had to. Um, right? The Supreme Court didn't start getting discretion over its docket until 1891. It didn't get discretion over most of its docket until 1925. Um, wow. And Talk so- about
0: that more because, I, honestly, I totally had no idea about that. That's fascinating.
2: So, you know, these days, right, most appeals that the Supreme Court takes up, it takes up through something called a writ of certiorari, which is basically the court exercising discretion to decide to hear an appeal from the lower courts. There are almost no cases, not none, but almost no cases that the Supreme Court must hear. Um, That's not how things were from 1789 until 1891. From 1789 until 1891, the court's docket was completely mandatory, meaning, if the court had jurisdiction, it had to exercise it. Um, And, you know, I I don't think that's realistic. I mean, the court gets five to 7,000 cases a year. I don't really think they're in a position to resolve that. But, you know, Jill, historically, the court resolved 100 to 150 merits cases a term as late as the 1980s. That number is down in the 50s now. Um, And part of what's happening is the cases that are disappearing are the apolitical cases, are the cases where the court looks like a court. Um... Right. So I would love to see Congress reassert some control over the court's docket, make the court take up cases they might not otherwise want to take, whether it's death penalty appeals or, you know, technical cases that lower courts want the court to take up for clarification and guidance or, you know, Jill, other things that aren't like the the high profile clickbait um, of each term, because what that does is two things. One, it's Congress reasserting itself just in general. Um, as an institutionalist check on the court. But two, it also, I think, gives the justices a chance to be judges, um, as opposed to politicians. And I think that would go a long way toward restoring at least some public confidence in the notion that, like, we might have vehement disagreements with some of these folks, we might look at the world through totally different eyes than they do. But, you know, we're all doing our best. <laughs> um you know, I, I think that would be a really positive development, and I think it's one that it would be very hard for folks to oppose on constitutional grounds, given that until 1891, that was all the court could do.
0: Well, okay. And I can't, based on what you're saying now, I can't leave this part of the conversation without asking about the number of justices, because you've talked about the increase in the volume of cases that come before them, that they have to exercise discretion because they can't decide all of them. Um there were nine circuits at one point, and that made sense to have nine justices, one in charge of each circuit. That's not the case anymore. So should we have thirteen justices or should we have some other number so that they would be able to handle the volume of cases in a different way?
2: Yeah, now I'm gonna get in trouble. because um, I, I, I am anti expanding the court, not mm-hmm. because not because I don't buy the arguments for it, but because I think it won't accomplish, you know, it won't it won't solve the problem. Um, in two different respects. So first, even in a world in which the Democrats were in a position to add four seats to the court, which is not the world we're living in today, um, you know, the next time the Republicans are in charge, they'll add seven. Um, and the next charge, the Demo- uh, right. And and this it's a race to the bottom at that point, Jill, where we've broken the norm yeah. of of using the court size as a political weapon so that 30 years from now, the court will have 47 justices and no legitimacy. Um and for people like you and me who want their to, who want who who want a court, um, that's that to me is no solution. In, in the shorter term, you know, even if we put four angels on the court, um, it still wouldn't be more accountable because all you're doing is changing the personnel, right? If mm-hmm. if if you agree with me, I'm not, I'm not saying you must, but for those who agree with me, for those who come from my perspective, that the real problem here is not the people; it's the separation of powers breakdown changing who the people are doesn't fix that problem. Um, We've had pretty bad justices on the court historically. I mean, Chief Justice Taney, the four horsemen, the conservative justices who dominated the court in the late 20s and 1930s. You know, it's not the people who are the problem, it's the institution. And so, you know, I think these conversations, even if they were politically realistic, and I don't think they are, are, I think, perpetuating what I see as a sort of a misdirected understanding of where the problem lies.
0: So, I mean, obviously there is, uh, if you could imagine, arguing in front of 47 people, as someone who has stood before the Supreme Court, it's pretty intimidating to look up at the nine. And it's also very hard to prepare for an argument because I know when I prepared, it was like I knew every case that was relevant from each of the justices so that I could refer to that particular case. Doing it for 47 would be a daunting task. So um, I certainly would never want that. I'm just saying, well, okay, we now have 13 circuits. Maybe it makes sense to have 13. Um, and we do have an unusual circumstance of stolen seats where, um, you know, Obama was not allowed to make an appointment that certainly was his to make. And then they rushed through Justice Barrett which was the exact opposite of what they had denied to Obama. So, you know, that kind of pisses me off a little bit and I makes know, me think that I mean, there I mean, must yeah. be a solution. So,
2: I, I mean, I, there, there are two different kinds of solutions, right? There's retribution and there's fixing the court. Right. And, and, yeah. and I guess my, my view is that those are not Mutually achievable in this context, um, and so if you want to, if you want retribution, fine. I understand that. I I, I get where that comes from. I want to fix the court, and so that's why my focus is elsewhere. Good point. So
1: we've, we've talked a lot about how we, you know, the importance of having conversations. I know you're also a law professor, and you talk to a lot of students and young people. <laughs> but how do you talk to young people now about this court? And what have kind of those conversations look like? And kind of what have you heard from young people about
2: kind of this current Supreme Court? And how do you alleviate some of their concerns? Well, I, I try to teach him a lot of history. Um, I mean, right, that it is not a new idea that the Supreme Court is a political institution. Um, and it's not a new idea that the justices are accused of being politicians in robes, right? So I think that historical context is helpful both to suggest that, like, this is not a unique crisis we find ourselves in, um, and to sort of separate out, Victor, what's different about today from prior periods in American history. Um, And I try to give them context that actually there are some differences that we ought to be alarmed about, but they're not necessarily the obvious ones, Um, right? The Supreme Court issuing an incredibly backwards ruling in Dobbs, right? To me is actually not nearly as historically problematic a a, a step, right? I mean, the the court has issued terrible rulings in the past and we've never suggested that those rulings by themselves undermine the court as an institution, Um, right? Dred Scott, Plessy, you name it, right? The question is, what's unique about this moment? And what's unique is the court's lack of accountability. Yeah. And so, what I try to do is I try to point out that, like the you know, we as lawyers should be most invested in understanding why process matters, why procedural regularity matters, why institutional norms and relationships matter, um, and how sort of breakdowns in those can in turn enable um, justices with whom we disagree to reach decisions we don't like. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, not to get too sort of um, uh, uh, cheesy, um, but you know, I'm fond of quoting Madison in Federalist 51, where he says, you know, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. And I think what my students see is, you know, there's a very ambitious Supreme Court right now. Um, we've had across multiple recent presidencies, very ambitious executives um, of both parties. Um, and we have no institutional ambition in Congress. Um, right. It's all just politics. Yeah. And and sort of, you know, part of the story I'm trying to tell my students is like we as smart people, as young people, as people with some voice in this debate, that's where we should be focusing our efforts is, you know, how do we yeah. how do we push the popularly elected branches to reassert a modicum of institutional control yeah. um, over each other?
1: Well, I really hope that happens. And Steve Vladek, thank you for all that you do and for writing your book about the shadow docket. Uh, we will be sure to include that in our show notes and uh, we hope that change is, is coming.
2: Uh, me too. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. So this much. was
0: fascinating. You're a great guest. Thank yeah. you.
2: Thanks. Thank you guys you. are great hosts. Thanks. Thank you.
1: Well, Jill, there is so much news uh, happening right now. Uh, Donald Trump has now been arrested uh, for the second time. Um, and, it's, you know, I, there's just so much happening right now. It's just- he hasn't been
0: arrested. He is in federal custody, although by now um, I'm not sure exactly where because we're recording this live. And so we're not watching as he is arraigned. And actually, we can't watch while he's being arraigned because, because federal courts no- don't allow cameras.
1: Well, and yesterday, the the court ruled that you can't even bring your cell phones into um, the, the court, um, so there's um, you know very concerning, but what do you make of all of this and kind of what we're seeing right now?
0: I think we're seeing accountability begin. Yeah. I think the indictment is very clear, very concise, very carefully laid out, yeah. and that it is a very strong case. And- It is a case that has been brought against a lot of other people so that this argument that it's only targeting him is just baloney. It isn't. It is a serious crime. The documents included things that were, for example, the vulnerability of our country and the vulnerability of our allies. You certainly don't want those highlighted to our enemies. Um, the nuclear capabilities you don't want that i mean there is just so many things that are in the 31 selected documents out of the hundreds that he took they have selected only 31 Mm -hmm. which i think is because you don't want to um well first of all overwhelm a jury with evidence but secondly because they probably picked the ones that for some reason could be introduced in evidence and declassified in some way Hmm. um, so that they could be used as evidence in the courtroom. And we'll have to wait and see how that plays out because, of course, what happens with the jury is you declassify them and they go, well, if they were declassifiable, then it's not a big deal. So let's forget it. Um, And so we have to see exactly how they work this out, whether it's through summarizing the document in a way that avoids revelation of things that would truly, truly destroy our national security. Um, but because we've been on, you know, for more than, let's see, for almost an hour, um, I don't know what's happened in the last hour. Um, well,
1: I, I said it was arrested because I did see that notification um, from MB, NBC that he has been arrested. Um, but there's.
0: Yeah, technically, that's not I mean, an arrest. Not an
1: arrest, yes. He has
0: surrendered himself. Surrendered himself arrest yeah. is a, di- I mean, at least as commonly understood in our yeah. parlance. You know, an arrest is something that happens when you're right. taken by surprise and hauled right. right. off in handcuffs. He is not handcuffed. He will yeah. not be handcuffed. Yeah. He didn't even have a mugshot. Yeah. They uploaded a stock photo of him. Yeah. Um. So I, I just don't want people thinking that he was arrested. I think that creates an image that for sure his supporters well, will use in a very... Very unhealthy way. So you know,
1: I will say also that um, you know you you know my parents are both Republicans. They voted for Trump in 2016, and um, they read the full indictment. I mean, it was very readable. They said yay it, it for your
0: parents. To- Thank you. And,
1: and they- and, and they told me that you know what Trump did was horrendous and that they will never vote for him again. I have another friend at UCLA who um, voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020. Um, I walked him through the indictment, and he's now completely turned off from Trump. So I really urge everyone to read the indictment. And um, there's an amazing podcast that MSNBC does between Andrew Weissman and um, Mary McCord. And this on Sunday, Ali Velshi did a full reading of the indictment. So if you don't want to read the right. indictment, you can also listen to the indictment. It's so readable, it's so well written. Um, they call it a speaking indictment. I mean, it, it's just so well kind of drawn out. And no one with a reasonable mind, I think, can conclude other than the fact that, you know, Donald Trump committed a crime and that he's at fault here. Um, but it's, uh, you know, for both and of my... He committed my- a crime
0: <laughs> and that he endangered, that endangered, he endangered our, our, our country by yep. doing it. And I exactly. would say that I love Ali Velshi and, and he did record it and it's worth listening to. But you would miss the pictures. There are some pictures in the indictment. So reading it means seeing the pictures. And even if you don't read it, look at the pictures and tell me that you aren't scared for how he handled national security information. And I also want to point out that in addition to these classified documents Mm -hmm. that are marked classified, that he took other things that belong to the federal government (laughs) And we can't forget the fact that the Presidential Records Act says that the government owns all of the product of his presidency, including these documents. And so the crimes that he committed is way broader than what he's been charged with. But what he's been charged with is enough to say he's guilty and he needs to be from ever having access to classified information again in order to protect our country and our allies.
1: Yeah, and shame on all of those Republicans who are saying, well, you know, this is a witch hunt and who know better. Today, J.D. Vance released a video saying that he's going to hold all DOJ nominees because what Merrick Garland is doing is harassing, um, Biden's political opponents. I mean, you just and he's someone who graduated from, I think, Yale Law School. And you have DeSantis who graduated from very prestigious law schools. And they're spewing all this nonsense about what's happening right now. And it's just kind of scary because people are going to listen to them and believe in what they have to say. But hopefully there are enough reasonable people out there who will take the time and read the indictment and see the photos and come to the conclusion that both you and I and anyone else will come to.
0: Well, there is the discussion about having the trial in Florida, where there is likely to be multiple Trumpers on the jury. The jury, that, right. That eventually judges him. And I just want to give some confidence to our listeners to say that I truly believe that jurors take an oath and pay attention. And part of their oath is that they will set aside their previous biases and viewpoints, that they will judge the Case based on the evidence presented in the courtroom and as happened in the Manafort trial where a Trump juror said, I believe everything Trump says and I love Manafort, but I was sworn to judge on the evidence. And based on what was presented, I voted to convict him on every single count and I trust that even a Trumper will vote to convict based on what is set forth in the indictment. Um, if I were his lawyer, I'd be telling him to go for a plea deal because (laughs) he will be convicted. He wouldn't. And that's why he's having trouble getting a lawyer to represent him in Florida is because he doesn't pay his lawyers, (laughs) which is one thing, but more importantly, he doesn't listen to his lawyers and he cannot stop himself from talking and saying things (laughs) that actually help the prosecutor prove his intent and his knowledge. So, um, I, I can't, you know, I, I'm sure we will hear from him tonight when he returns to Bedminster. He will be giving a speech, and I'm sure it will be filled with fundraising Uh, salvos and that he will succeed in that uh, because he has a loyal following, which is wonderful. I just wish they would read the indictment. I wish that Fox News would put the full indictment on and just reading it. You don't have to embellish it. Just what it is. And so if far, Bill there's no defense. Mind, so they,
1: I hope. I'm, I'm sorry If, Bill, I didn't Barr, if you. Bill Barr can change his mind, so can they. I hope.
0: Yes, that would be good. Yes.
1: Well, I knowledge know we'll, is power. Exactly. Well, I hope. I know. I know we will be talking about this case. Uh, for the foreseeable future and other Trump cases, so uh, this isn't going anywhere. Um, We thank everyone for watching this episode of Politics with Steve Vladek. Um, You can check out his book uh, called The Shadow Docket um, wherever you buy your books. It's a great book. It's a great read, especially in this moment right now. Um, And we will see you next week for another episode of Politics. You can find us right on YouTube.com slash Politicon live every Tuesday or the day after on Wednesday wherever you follow your podcasts. Uh, We are going to be here. And thank Thank you for watching or listening.